when I went to college, I went into commercial art. And of course, when you get into commercial art, you have to deal with color. It didn't take long that I had a problem because I was colorblind. <laughs> so my life has consisted of pen and ink and black and white photography. But I think of those of you who are artists may be able to relate that when you have a canvas and you take your stroke of the brush and you paint it and you put it up there, you have a tendency to want to step back and take a different look at it. Sometimes you want to kind of tweak your head and see it from a different perspective. And then you take the oils or whatever it may be, and then you will brush it, and you'll step back, and you'll look at it from a different perspective. Because see, sometimes we have to step farther back to see the bigger picture, don't we? Well, Pastor Sergio has been painting as well. But it's not a canvas. Ha <laughs> ha! His brush strokes is a mural. And they are broad brush strokes, and they are big. And we have been talking and seeing a picture about David. But I invite you this morning to go as far back as we can to the very beginning about David, who was a shepherd boy. Because in order for us to be able to touch base on the message that God has for us today, something took place with David as a shepherd boy. Excuse me. Refill my lips here. Because really, we can scan over the story of David so quickly, we miss this picture. David, a shepherd boy, Tending to sheep, but also being in the presence of God. We don't know great detail of what it was like for him. And he was 15 years old. David had a relationship with God, he knew God. As we will see, he knew God personally. In fact, David's relationship is something that I can even envy myself. But Samuel came and he anointed David to be the king. But David was humble. He played his part. But when he heard about the battle and he was told to go to the battle for his brothers... Ah, 15 years old. He couldn't help but go out there to see what the problem or the issue was all about. And of course, with the Israelites, they were scared of one person. One person. And his name was Fred. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Goliath. I can dream. Goliath was nine feet tall. Man, you're small. Nine feet tall. Far more intimidating than I am right now. He was way down there. 
But there was something, something within David that made it possible for him to come up before Goliath and without any problem whatsoever call him out. Because he had who on his side? God. He didn't even hesitate to think about it. He teamed up with God from the very beginning. How many Goliaths do you have come across your path every day? How do we deal with them? On our own effort? On our own strengths? On our own abilities? Because you see, David had a relationship with God. A relationship that he knew him personally. So in order for us to be able to continue the story, I need to set the stage as we go into the scriptures. As soon as David returned home from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, and David still holding, still holding the Philistine's head. <laughs> now, Pastor Serge did pretty good when he presented this, but could you imagine... David walked around with his head for a long time. You want a piece of me? You want a piece of me? Come on. That's what I needed in high school. He didn't flaunt it, though. It was just a matter of fact. It wasn't David that slew the enemy. It was God. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. Now we need to remember here that David is only 15 years old. And Saul, he's 55. Not a young whippersnapper no more. So let's take a look here as we set the stage for what we need to see within the perspective of David's life in order for us to be able to know more about what takes place after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. Pastor Serge did a wonderful sermon last week about the relationship between David and Jonathan. Talk about a bond. Talk about a friendship. Talk about a love that wasn't even fearful to acknowledge to say, I love you. Those two had something special. 
But we see that David did not go back to his father Jesse. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe that he was wearing, gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. Just think about this, guys. I'm not sure the time frame, but David's out there with the giant at 15 years old. From this point before he gets king of Judah is when he's 30. So he's in his teens and 20s. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the woman came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain ten thousands, and David, oh, his tens of thousands. Put yourself in Saul's shoes. Wait a minute. Did I hear that correctly? Saul only slays a thousand? And David, tens of thousands? Saul was very angry. His refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me, but me with only a thousand. Come on. Who am I? I am the king. He is just a mere boy. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. I gotta keep my eye on this young man. Or else. The next day, an evil spirit came from God, came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. We talked about that before with Pastor Sergio. David was asked to come in to comfort him and to soothe Saul in, the, in whatever room he was at by playing this lyre of the harp. And music can do that, can't it? It can give you peace. It can help kind of take the stress of life and just let it go. And here David is playing this for Saul. And it said that Saul had the spear in his hand and he hurled it saying to him, I'll pin David to the wall, but David eluded him twice. Twice. Paul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. Ah, there's the problem, folks. Saul experiences this distance from God, the Spirit of God, Saul had become a very self-centered, very egotistical. I don't know about you, but I don't know how would you respond if you had a spear thrown at you? 
Saul took his son Jonathan and all the attendees to kill, and, as he told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. Let's just go ahead and wipe him out of the picture. That way I don't have to keep my eye on him. I don't have to worry about him. Let's just go ahead and take him off of the planet. But remember the relationship that Pastor Serge talked about. Uh -huh. Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. So here David goes and hides. Jonathan goes to his father. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel. And you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong in an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? No reason at all. Dad, what are you thinking? Dad, what's going on? See, Dad's having some difficulties, I think, here, even mentally. Paul listened to Jonathan and took his oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. Oh, whew. Oh, that's good news. We can all go home. David won't be put to death, folks. But Saul is so wishy-washy. He says one thing and does another. Look it. Once more war broke out and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such a force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came to Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear again in his hand. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. What happened between verse 11 and 6? He gave an oath to Jonathan. Okay, I, I won't kill him. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow, you will be killed. So Michael let, down, let David down from a window, and he fled and escaped. Uh, one thing that is of great importance that we cannot forget is that glimpse of picture of David on the battlefield. There is something unique about this young boy. He had a relationship with God. And in the Psalms, we have a chance to be able to see that relationship unfold once again as we look at 1 Samuel 23. 
Or I should ask the question, why was David running? Well, how many times had the spear been thrown at him? Three that we know of. If anybody threw a spear at me, I think I would choose to be able to leave myself. But the question is, why was David running? Was he out there to retaliate somewhere in the future against Saul? I mean, he was victorious against the armies of the Philistines. He had the power. He had the ability. But he continued to elude Saul for one reason. And we're going to find that reason shortly. Because he had this wonderful relationship with his father. I like the dialogue and the... And the, and the uh, the way that it's worded in this first Saul 23, when David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are looting the threshing floors, David, David inquired with the Lord. And the Lord answered him. Once again, David inquired with the Lord, and the Lord answered him. David said, and the Lord said. And again, David asked, and the Lord said. Do you see the dynamics? This young boy had a relationship with the Heavenly Father just the same way that I'm talking with you. It was real. It was personal. It was intimate. David spoke and the Lord spoke. David spoke and the Lord spoke. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Kia and kept moving from place to place. Was he fearful? Was he having a plan of attack to be able to come back and get Saul? Well, let's look at 1 Samuel 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Three, he came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. They didn't have rest stops like we do today, I guess. Good thing, because I don't think I could find any caves as I travel across the country. But do you see the picture? 3,000 men Saul took with him to find David. Come on, each and every one of you knows Mother Nature hits, and when it does... You got to take care of business. Now, if we were watching a movie, I could see maybe the movie screen diffusing or possibly even going to black. And a voice would come over the speakers that reads, Now Saul didn't know it, but David and his men were hiding in the recesses of that very cave. David's guards thought it was a perfect time to strike. It seems as much of the first book of Samuel is taken up with Saul trying to kill David and David escaping. And when David catches Saul in the most vulnerable position, 
his men urge him to kill Saul. It would be nothing more than self-defense, wouldn't it? He already threw a spear at him three times. Go on, David. You can do it. Wouldn't Saul kill David if Saul caught him down with his pants down? Isn't Saul turning over every stone in the wilderness looking for David so that he could kill him? There's something in David, folks. Remember, don't lose sight of it. There's something in David that he held on to very tightly. David settles for a symbolic victory. He cuts off a corner of Saul's robe while Saul is otherwise occupied. But when he feels ashamed, if David is supposed to be king someday, God will make that happen. Ah, here, here, it's starting to surface now. But until that time, who is he to bring shame on the king whom God had anointed as his ruler? David was anointed, but Saul was anointed. David loved God. He respected God. He honored God. In fact, it was quick to see in the next verse here in Psalm, in 1 Samuel 26. So David and Abisha went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with a spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abisha said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. Why is David running? But David said to Abisha, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he will go into the battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I shall lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that is near his head and let's go. See, David still had respect for what God did to Saul. He honored Saul by that gesture of not killing him. David believed this very strongly. What God has put in place, man does not replace. And folks, that goes for us today. What God has put in place Man does not replace. Why? Because God has a plan. David had the ability at the age of 15 to realize that God had a plan and that he was just part of it. It wasn't David's responsibility to take over the plan. It was God's plan. And folks, sometimes we have difficulties ourselves because God has a plan for us. And sometimes we like to step over the line and take over that plan. 
Isaiah 55 says, these are the words of the Lord, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Come on. I can't have any idea what the Lord is thinking or the choices that he makes, nor is it my place to question him. My place is to have faith and trust him, to know that what he is doing is for the best of all involved, and that is so hard to accept today, isn't it? When we look at the world around us, I can just feel for the young family over there at, at Harborview watching the little boy and the prayers that are being petitioned for God to be able to be there to cover this little boy to help the doctors. And the mom even asked, is this God's plan? See, sometimes we get so confused that we don't see the bigger picture. God doesn't create problems. Sin creates problems. We live in a world of sin that has a tendency for our consequences to surface, and we shake our fist at God, and we say, why? When in all actuality... It was I who created the problem. I think the picture of David here is telling me the importance of trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding. Do you hear that, folks? Trust in Him. Lean not in your own understanding. Let go. But in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. It's one of those things, boy, Pastor Fred, it's so easy to say. I see it on paper. It comes off my lips with no problem, but ah, it's so hard. A am I just talking to myself? It's so hard. We want to be involved. We want to make our own decisions. But in order for me to fully understand this trust in the Lord, I need to be able to know Him. There's a statement, knowing God is what Christianity and religion and life eternal is all about. That's all about is just knowing God, not my behavior, not the Sabbath, not eating, not eating pork, not eating, not, nothing. Knowing God is the bottom line. My relationship with Him. Nothing I can do can save me. Knowing God is what Christianity and religion and life eternal is all about because life eternal is a gift from His Son, Jesus Christ, who gave it to me for dying on a cross. I can't pay for it. John 17, 3, and eternal life means to know you, the only true God, and to know Jesus Christ whom you sent. 
So my job in life, when I walk here on this earth, is to do exactly what the Scripture says, and that is to get to know God. That's all. Get to know God. Personally. Intimately. In every aspect that you can think, He wants you to know Him. But sometimes you have to get out of your box to do it. Sometimes you have to get out of your security to do it. Act on faith. If God says go, you go. He says do, you do. Because that's part of the relationship of getting to know God. David was proactive. Would you say? American Heritage Dictionary talks about a proactive person acts in advance to deal with an expected difficulty. Ah, they gave some thought to it. Nine times out of ten, myself included, I react. The hammer hits my finger, I react. He bases choices on values and principles rather than desires, feelings, circumstances, conditions, and environment. Although proactive choices can be made according to feelings, they are compatible with our values. Ah, it's who I am. It's, it's what I believe in God, my values, the things that I hold importance. My choices have to line up with what God has for me. On the other hand, reactive choices are based only on feelings whereby we often sacrifice our values because of our feelings. Has your feelings ever taken you down the wrong road? Have you ever had to suffer sorrow and tragedy and hurt because of your feelings? Yeah. We cannot live our life according to feelings. I need to live my life on what I know to be true in my relationship with God. David had a winning attitude. And I believe that each one of you here would like to have a winning attitude. Attitudes, not circumstances, make the difference for those who overcome the toughest situations. I look at Colleen, and I see your attitude has been evolved to what has brought you to where you're at today. God can take tragedy and turn it around and change our attitude to make it positive, to see the hand of God moving. God made us to be winners. Do you believe that? I do. He made us to be winners. Unfortunately, too many have been conditioned to lose. It's sad when I see situations or hear stories about parents or adults 
telling children that they're of no good, they're of no value, they mean nothing. Because unfortunately, the child at that age has a tendency to believe it. I look at Spencer here, the principal of our school. I could just imagine the things that he has come across with children of that conflict that you have to go out there to build up these children where in their home life there are adults who are tearing it down. I know one thing about Spencer at this school. He's saying each one of his students is a winner, right? You're all winners here. Each one of you, because God created you that way. We can be winners if we choose to nurture an attitude that releases the power of God instead of the one that keeps us confined to fear and failure. I can't be a winner on my own. I have to connect with God. I have to have that relationship. I have to have that thing that every day I come to Him and say, Lord, good morning. Here I am, your son. I need you. Help me. May we connect today, lead and direct my life. Because without you, Lord, I can't do it. Your willingness to line your thinking up with what God has said will set the course for success or failure. See, that's what David did. He lined up his thinking with the will of God. He didn't step over the line when it came to Saul. Because, see, Saul was anointed. He was the one that God had chosen. And who was Dave to be saying, oh, no, I'm going to take his life? Uh-uh. He's one of God's anointed. That's because what happens in you is more important. Hear, hear this. That's because what happens in you is more important to your success than what happens to you. Colleen, right? There are many here who sit here this morning who have gone through, oh, tragedy, hurt, pain, whatever it may be. And if you can step far enough back to look at it from a different perspective, you can say that it's not so much what happened to me, it's what happened in me that I thank the Lord for. Even though in the eyes of the world it looks like tragedy. God is out to baffle the world. He doesn't see the life the same way the world does. And we have to be able to realize that it's not so much what happens to me, but what happens in me. Surely, as success begins with an attitude, failure begins without one. A winner is not someone who has never suffered a setback. Ah, you hear that? How many setbacks have you experienced? You're still a winner. You're still a winner. He is someone who knows that when the setbacks come, he must get up and continue forward. If you refuse to quit, you cannot lose. 
Put that on the mirror in your bathroom. Do not quit. Because if you don't, you will not lose. You're not a loser. You're a winner. Quitting is not an option. But change is always a part of the winner's life. The good news is that anyone who is willing to change can develop a winning attitude. I don't know where you are at on your walk with Christ today. Maybe you don't have one. But you need to ask yourself, am I a winner? Do I acknowledge myself as a winner? How do you see yourself? Because see, the Lord wants to change each and every one of us. He wants to transform us into the children that He desires from us since the creation of this earth. Now is the time to change. Now is the time to reach the, the hand of the Lord and says, I want to be with you. I want to commune with you every day. I want an intimate relationship with you starting now. I want to be like David. Because in doing so, I can hold my head up high and let people know that I'm a winner because of God's love.